With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGeese joining me from the airport in Sydney, Australia, fresh off of covering the Liquamale Bathurst 12 hour. John, busy weekend for you, I'm sure. Ready to talk about it? Absolutely. All right. We'll be doing that here in just a moment. Plenty of news to get to on the tail end of the program as well. But uh, for those of you who somehow missed it, it was a big weekend for Bentley at Bathurst after several near misses. The British manufacturer with a breakthrough win in the Intercontinental GT Challenge and specifically at the Bathurst 12-hour, John. And, and it was hard fought for sure. Bentley wasn't really a manufacturer that leaped out throughout the course of the week in terms of raw pace. But once we got into the flow of the race, it really seemed like both of the cars had some significant pace. And the, the ultimate race winning car in particular really figured prominently for the bulk of the 12 hours. Yeah, and, and I don't think many people could have predicted this going into the weekend, especially seeing what state they were in, in on Friday. Both of the Bentley Continental GT3s missed the final practice session on Friday. Um, as an engine change for the eventual race-winning 7 car, and then a sensor issue for the number 8 car. And then, mind you, that following morning, brake failure sent Ali Jarvis into a hard crash in um, final practice Saturday. So the 8 car didn't even make it to qualifying. They started from the back of the grid, ultimately didn't factor into the end of the race. But with the 7 crew, like you said, um, it was quite a dominant run. I, I was really impressed um, by the pace, the consistency. This is something we really hadn't seen from this manufacturer in quite some time. And like you said, it was a long time coming. Um, fifth attempt at the mountain, first win. Um, this is the first major endurance victory for the Bentley Team M Sport um, since the program's inception. I think they won Paul Ricard 1,000 kilometers last year. But um, in terms of a major endurance race, um, it, it's really, there it hasn't been one. And um, to see the excitement and to see the level of emotion within this crew was really remarkable post-race. And as Paul Williams, the director of Bentley Motorsport, put to me, he said it was a long time coming. Yeah, you said it. That wasn't just your average victory celebration. There were a lot of demons slain, I think, with that victory for Bentley. And especially coming off of the heels of disappointment uh, a year ago in this race, certainly this is one that Bentley has targeted. They've they've really approached this with a great deal of uh, commitment from a manufacturer's standpoint, this race in particular in recent years. What is the significance of this breakthrough win for Bentley in the IGTC? I think it really sets a precedent for Bentley and their new approach to GT3 racing. Just 12 months ago, M Sport was in charge of the factory programs for both Intercontinental and GT World Challenge Europe in the, in the Endurance Cup. And quite frankly, that was the case for quite a few years, and um, Paul Williams replaced the retiring Brian Gush during the, um, during the course of last year, brought in some new strategy, brought in some uh, some fresh blood into the organization, and M Sport is dedicated to IGTC only, and they've actually, they're focusing their customers in the, the GT World Challenge Championships um, around the world, and I think maybe a, a more central focus on IGTC really helped this team this weekend. Um, certainly the pace was there from Jules Gunan, Maxime Soule, and Jordan Pepper. Um, but they also benefited from a lot of luck. Um, Gunan had a puncture on, uh, but on one minute to go, um, 
it happened on Conrad Strait, and, and and you can see the chunks of rubber in the car. And this is when he was battling for the lead with Raffaele Marciello. We knew the Bentley had the pace at the time, but um, quick pit work got the the car back out, and um, it, it was quite remarkable because they weren't actually planning to change tires on their final stop, and that puncture sort of forced them into and. Had, it, had they not changed tires, I don't know if we, they would have actually made it to the end of the race. Yeah, really interesting. It was amazing to see the emotion from Jules Guna on the onboard camera on the TV coverage. You could see him pounding the wheel in frustration. I think in that moment, he thought that the race had gone away, but in the end, it actually maybe worked out in favor of the Bentley boys. So uh, a big breakthrough there. And, and like we've said, there there is a whole lot new about this Bentley program this year. And I think there is a natural tendency to talk about that. But maybe this it is worth noting just how much this program, even without him hands-on involved, has the fingerprints of Brian Gush on it. This GT3, this new GT3 Continental, certainly something that he helped bring to the fold and really cementing Bentley's place within GT racing. You have to look at in Brian's direction, right, when you're trying to apportion credit for the position that the Bentley program found itself in entering 2020? I would say for sure. Um, it was sort of revealed that this program almost was on the verge of being canceled just a few years ago. And I think Brian played a, a critical part in keeping it going through his passion and, and trying to, to, to get key victories and build on, on their customer base. So um, if it wasn't for Brian, I don't think Bentley would be here right now um, celebrating the, the victory at Mount Panorama. So um, absolutely, it was a very long time coming. This gives Bentley a lot of momentum going into the IGTC season. Um, there was tough days on the track for Audi and, and really some unlucky breaks for Mercedes AMG as well, even though they leave um, Bathurst as the championship leaders in, in the manufacturer standings. But um, it was a crazy final hour, hour altogether as everybody was keeping their eyes on the sky. Yeah, let's talk about that final hour because even when it was determined that the the puncture wasn't going to cause the Bentley to lose the race. There was certainly no degree of confidence that the way that they were running on the track was the way they were going to finish. The wind was really picking up. You could pick that up on the TV broadcast, and rain was imminent. They kept showing the the radar screens, and it seemed like any moment it could open up with some torrential downpours, and we saw lightning in the background, and yet it stayed dry. That rain held off until the very end. It really was high drama there in the final hour. I wasn't, I was waiting to write my race report. And you know, Ryan, we always try to pre-write things before the end of the race, but I was certain that the rain was going to come. Yeah. It was, it looked so bad out there. The winds were blowing, um, blowing campers around and, 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 and tents and stuff and, 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 um, out on the top of the mountain. It was unbelievable. And it, it just, at that, my, at that point, it seemed, you know, like the whole order was going to be shaken up. We had the number 912 Porsche on an alternative strategy with fuel, you know, it had the rain came. They might have been able to take advantage to put their car on, on wet weather tires and, and maybe pull off a, a surprise win there. There were a lot of different dynamics. Then we had the puncture um, by Mauro Engel, um, then another puncture by Raffaele Marciello. Then um, Marciello uh, dropped back to third at the time and, and, and was, um, was battling with Tom Blomquist for, for second and got, him by, got by him on the final lap. Then Marciello got a, a post-race penalty of 30 seconds for a pit lane infraction during his final stop for that puncture that dropped him down to sixth. There, there was high drama all around, but I think the most fitting thing was was just as the Bentley took the checkered flag, the heavens opened up. I've never seen anything like that in my racing career uh, of, of covering motorsports, that the moment the winning car 
took the checkered flag, it just started pouring rain. And had that happened 30 seconds earlier, or even a minute earlier or whatever, we could have seen complete carnage on the mountain. And as Jules told me, he, he sort of felt like the, like the racing gods were looking after him in, in, in the final hour. And what I witnessed was truly magical. It looked that way from the outside, too. Really remarkable stuff. And, and while the Bentley featured prominently, certainly they weren't the only protagonists. I do think Mercedes showed well, and McLaren did as well. Maybe a bit of a surprise to see the strength of the McLaren, given the fact it was uh, new, for the first start at this track for the, the uh, 720S, and also the team running the car really quite new, and not, not a lot of people knew much about this team when they showed up. Yeah, this was a, a crew from Emma Racing. They had, had um, a local team for, with, um, I think, some V8 supercar experience, had done some Australian GT with this car last year, but a real unknown going into the weekend. And, and I, I was, I'm not sure if it was Ben or, or, um, or Tom that said it in the, in the post-qualifying press conference, but they said this is the first big race for the McLaren 720S. And looking back at what the car did last year and I had actually have to agree with them that we they didn't it didn't take part in a spa 24 hours it didn't do Nurburgring 24 or any of the major 24 hour races for that matter so this was kind of a big debut for for the 720s under the McLaren Automotive um, direction and to see such a flawless run okay they had some issues there was a lot of little problems throughout the race so maybe it wasn't flawless you can check out a story by our slave parents about that on, on Sports Car 365 but um, to see the pure pace. I, I think it was actually their Silver Cup class winning car that set the race's fastest lap overall in, in the final hour. Um, I was really impressed by, by the McLarens. I, I wasn't expecting them to have this kind of pace, and it sort of seemed to have come out of nowhere, but um, well done for a, a second place for Parent, Barnacote, and Baumquist. And then how about the struggles for some of the traditional key factors in in this race and in IGTC Audi in particular really had a weekend to forget and especially coming on the heels of, of last year's performance really didn't see a ton from Porsche either outside of the amazing pole lap from Matt Campbell yeah w when can Audi buy some luck at Bathurst it, <laughs> right. it didn't it, you know this was their 10th anniversary going into it they had three wins on the trot but not uh, very, very lucky in the last couple of years um, and this was no different um uh, Garth Tander crashed out one of the factory Audi um, um, back Audi Sport back Valvoline entries early on. Then another car um, had a series of right rear punctures. Then another car was sent to the garage, I think, with a, a rev limiter issue. Uh, it was a really, really disappointing race for for the German manufacturer. And again, they're starting off their IGTC campaign on the back foot like they were last year. Um, but like you said, Porsche as well too. Um, I think that was the bigger surprise considering the monumental performance by Matt Campbell and EBM last year that took that sensational victory. Um, this year, they really didn't have the pace. They had the fuel mileage. That was the difference. That was the Porsche GT3Rs, the new gen car um, that was making its debut at Mount Panorama. They, they were able to go longer than the other cars on stint length, but um, ultimately some little troubles for the cars, uh, a puncture for the 911, a penalty for the 911 for a pit lane infraction. Um, the one Earl Bamber car, number one car of Earl Bamber, Lawrence Vanthor and Craig Lowndes, they had brake issues from the onset. Um, they had to do a brake uh, a brake rotor change. I think um, right around midway through the race, um, a couple other teams did that too, including the race winning Bentley of note. But strategically, the Bentley did it while under a safety car. The EBM crew was forced to do it under a green flag, as um, Earl told me post race that they had a pit. They had a they had the brakes were right down to the steel. So um, really unlucky break there for for the number one EBM crew. 
Um, spoke to both Earl and Lauren's post-race, and they both thought they would have had a chance for a podium finish. But the general consensus was that nobody really had anything for the Bentley. Um, you know, Mercedes put up a really good challenge, and I think that, you know, if they didn't have some issues late in the race too, they probably could have been there close pace-wise, but it just seemed like it was Bentley's day. It definitely did, and uh, certainly well-deserved with their victory. Final talking point, leaving the weekend, John, and it was certainly true in the build-up to the race. Maybe, I mean, there were some incidents during the race itself, but thankfully we had a lot of clean running. In fact, we set a new distance record for the second consecutive year in the race. But there was a great deal of attrition, specifically going back to the day before the race in practice and qualifying the days leading up to the race, I should say, with several really, really heavy accidents that led to cars being withdrawn. And I think the two things people will remember from the 2020 version of this race will be Bentley breaking through and all the emotion surrounding that, and also all the heavy crashes that we saw that eliminated, I think, five cars before we ever took the green flag. Yeah, um, you know, the mountain always bites people, but I think it really bit a lot of teams hard this weekend. And for whatever reason, there was a lot of attribution to the heat. Um, we had temperatures in, in the low 100s. I, I was looking at my watch, and it was 104 Fahrenheit at one point during the weekend, and I'm and, and it made for really, really slick conditions, especially at the top of the mountain. Um, caught out a lot of drivers. Um, we had, I think, four cars alone crash out on Saturday, sent a couple drivers to the hospital. Luckily, everybody, from what we understand, has escaped serious injury. Um, so, um, thankfully, um, no major injuries there. But, um, yeah, it ended up with a lot of carnage, a lot of wrecked cars, um, un unfortunately. And I spoke to Ranger van der Zander, who was one of the drivers who actually came to another driver's aid during an accident when Marvin Kirchhofer um, completely totaled his uh, number 62R motorsport Aston Martin. Um, the, the car almost rolled, well, the car did roll over before coming back to its, coming back over onto its, uh, onto its right side and the right side up. And um, Ranger saw the accident. He stopped immediately, got out of his, his Honda. And, and came to um, Kirchhofer's aid, and luckily Marvin was okay. But um, a similar thing happened with Dirk Mueller um, coming to the aid of a Mercedes GT3 driver who totaled his car at the top of the mountain just a few hours earlier. Um, but um, bottom line is um, I think drivers are taking way too many risks in practice and qualifying. They weren't thinking about the race ahead. And as we saw in the race, there was only five full-course cautions. Like you said, a due distance record achieved. A four-hour, ten-minute stretch of green flag running, another new record for the race. So um, I think maybe Friday and Saturday served as a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of these drivers. And once it got down to racing, I think people realized that hey, we have to be take this track a little more seriously and 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 make sure you don't don't take too many risks. Well, it was a memorable weekend at Bathurst for a lot of reasons. Congratulations to the Bentley boys on their victory. And for full coverage, make sure to check out sportscar365.com. Coming up next, though, we'll turn our attention to the news of the week. Still a lot of fallout from the prototype convergence announcement that took place a little over a week ago at Daytona. That's coming up next on Double Stent. Hi, this is Jordan Taylor, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast.
back on Double Stints. John, let's get to some news here from the week that was still a lot to be determined in terms of the future direction for prototype racing. But uh, we have had some time now to speak to more manufacturers, gauge their reactions to the announcement that was made in Daytona about LMDH, the new prototype platform that is coming to the WEC and to IMSA's WeatherTech Championship. Interesting to note, a couple of German manufacturers that seem pretty intrigued by the LMDH concept that really haven't been mentioned with too much seriousness in terms of interest in prototype in recent years, despite a rich history there. Yeah, we had an exclusive interview with Dr. Michael Steiner, a board member for the research and development at Porsche AG, and he basically announced Porsche's intentions to evaluate the program. He praised LMDH um, as being a historical step in in, in the convergence between the, the IMSA and ACO, and seemed it's all indications are seems that in, that that Porsche is very well on board with the idea. Um, of course, we're going to have to wait and see till the final regulations are. Um, a lot of people are still waiting on that, including another German manufacturer in Audi. Um, I had a chance to speak with Chris Reinke, the head of customer racing over the weekend at Bathurst, and he shared some interest as well. But um, bottom line with Audi is they're in a bit of a question mark of where that where the LMDH program would kind of fit in. Would it be a factory program? Would it be a customer program? Or would it be somewhere in between? Um, a lot of these manufacturers, and as Chris brought up, you know, it, there's different departments for certain programs and how you can justify an LMDH for factory or for customer or or is it going to be something in between how how would you work that into the the proposals when you bring it to the board so um, there's a lot still going on you know we're still only a week and a half out of the from the the announcement of the convergence so uh, there's still a lot of discussions we still need technical regulations but I think it's extremely encouraging to see both Porsche and Audi show some interest. Um, there's a lot of other manufacturers with interest too, so let's not discount them. But um, I would say at this time, Porsche is probably one of the front runners um, looking to enter the, this global prototype platform. That's really exciting news. And we know some other manufacturers are keeping a close eye on what kind of tech would be involved in LMDH, speaking specifically about the, the hybrid system. Uh, especially as it relates to perhaps tying into sharing that technology with other series. What do we know about this in its very early stages, I think, of discussion behind the scenes? Yeah, so IMSA put out a tender in the second half of last year for the spec hybrid system, and we understand that there was quite a few um, um, companies that came back with offers. Ultimately, that decision was never made. That was amid all these convergence talks, so IMSA delayed a, a decision. But we do know there have been discussions with ITR, the, the owners of DTM, as well as NASCAR, which is MSA's parent company, about possible shared hybrid technology that would make sort of economies of scale um, a lot easier for the implementation of this technology in a spec form. So, um, you know, both we've, we've talked to people from both sides of the spectrum. Um, BMW with Jens Marquardt um, would obviously be in favor of that, you know, having a shared hybrid technology with DTM. Um, but um, David Wilson from Toyota TRD would be in favor of a shared NASCAR uh, 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 hybrid system. And from what, I'm, uh, from what I'm understanding, I think it's more likely to go in the direction of a shared system with NASCAR just because of the family relations there. Um, not discounting DTM. We know IMSA made trips over to Germany at the tail end of the year to have discussions about this. But 
Um, my guess right now is that we might be seeing somewhat of a, a shared system with NASCAR. Um, it's the NASCAR set to debut a hybrid system in 2022, the same year that um, LMDH comes online in America. So there's a lot of synergies there, but we sort of have to wait and see the details, and, and hopefully we'll get those in, in Sebring in a, in, a, in a month's time. Still a lot of question marks about what this is going to look like, obviously, when it's actually implemented. But an interesting idea floated from Orica about the ability to upgrade from an LMP2 chassis to an LMDH chassis, uh, something that is not currently possible, I don't believe, mostly because of manufacturer exclusivity deals in terms of upgrading an LMP2 to a DPI today. But does that sound like something that might have some legs? I think it does. And, and David Flory, the technical director for Orica, basically indicated that it should be possible in, inside these new technical regulations. Um, while we're getting LMDH, and that's the big focus point right now, it'll also be a new generation of an LMP2 um, uh, platform that'll be good for a 10-year homologation run, which is pretty unprecedented in, in the sports car racing world. But more importantly, that will be the same base chassis that we see on LMDH. So very much like what we have now with LMP2 and DPI. Um, I think the key here is that, we're, that the sanctioning bodies are going to have to put some kind of enforcement out stating that customer versions of those LMDHs must be made available or upgradable from LMP2. I think that's the key point that will need to happen in order for this to sort of work out, because as Flory pointed out, there were multiple IMSA teams that wanted their hands on an Acura, wanted to upgrade their Orica to an Acura for um, DPI competition. It included Core Autosport and um, um, JDC Miller. Also, there was interest from Meyer Shank Racing to buy a, an Acura outright, but um, Team Penske holds exclusivity on that car, at least through the end of this year, we believe. So um, anyway, that's an intriguing story. You can check that out on Sports Car 365. We still don't have details on what the LMP2 regulations will be exactly, but at least we do know it'll be the base common chassis for a uh, base chassis from the four different constructors as what will be be the underpinnings for LMDH. All right. Interesting to see what has come out already and more of this, I'm sure, coming in the weeks to come as we get closer and closer to Sebring, where we hope to get some more direction from the powers that be. Speaking of Sebring, we expected this, and we have confirmation Corvette Racing will have an entry for the WEC round at Sebring. That means three rounds of the championship this year. We'll see Corvettes assuming they get their entry for Le Mans, and I suspect being on the grid at Sebring and Coda certainly helps their case when it comes to the AC extending those entries for Le Mans. Yeah, those participations are basically a prerequisite for Corvette to be confirmed for Le Mans. The same case was last year with the C7R making outings both at uh, the Shanghai WEC round and the Sebring round. Um, so we're sort of seeing a repeat of that. Uh, drivers haven't been announced for either the Coda um, six-hour or the Sebring 1,000 miles yet. I would assume that Corvette would probably use one set of drivers for one race and another set for the other race like they did last year. Um, but um, certainly good news for, for that. We have 30 cars um, provisionally on the entry list for the 1,000 miles of Sebring. Um, the only car absent, actually, is the Cool Racing or Orica LMP2, which is quite interesting because they were a full-season entrant. Um, I know our Dan Lloyd is trying to get to the bottom of that, and hopefully we'll have a story up on the site soon um, regarding the situation there. And finally, regarding that same weekend, there had been a clash 
between the WEC and Formula E and their EPRI at Sanya. But because of the ongoing health concerns surrounding uh, China at the moment, the Sanya EPRI has been canceled. And while this is a sports car racing podcast, this is important because uh, there are so many crossovers between the two series. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. There was a number of drivers that were faced with difficult situations or contractual obligations to either race at Sebring or Sanya. Now they can all race at Sebring. Um, We actually had heard that Felix Rosenquist was set to replace Antonio Felix da Costa in the the Jota Sport LMP2 car. I actually spoke to Sam Hignett last weekend in Bathurst, and he said that's if Sanya isn't canceled. And I said, oh, okay. And then all of a sudden we had the announcement that Sanya was canceled the next day. So he might have had some inside info. Obviously, um, Sam's very close to uh, David Chang and his family. And um, we're wishing all the best to the Changs right now because they actually live in Wuhan, where it's the center of the epidemic. Um, David's actually stranded in, in London, as we understand right now. But um, his family seems to be OK right now. And fingers crossed everything works out there. But um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting um, development in the, in the sports car racing world that had to sort of you know a a ripple effect over the last day and i think it'll be great news for no clashes between wec and formula e um this year at least we'll have to see what happens next season because initially we had three clashes um went down to two then went down to one and now with the cancellation of the sanya round um uh, the the postponement of the sanya round um gives these drivers flexibility in, in being able to do sebrain after all All right, so a busy week of news for sure. Also a lot to discuss, as we did earlier, about the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour. Thank you very much, John, for taking some time to chat about it with us on the show here this week. We'll be doing so again next week. It's a bit of a quiet weekend for sports car racing, but I suspect there will be plenty to talk about. So looking forward to discussing that on our next edition of the Double Stint Podcast. If you do have any questions for us, we urge you to send those in using the hashtag AskDoubleStint or by leaving a comment in the comments section. I think we had a, a question or two from Tarek R. this week, but Tarek, I believe that you had sent those in before and it looked like those were questions that we had addressed during our uh, one of our podcasts in the build-up to the 24 hours of Daytona. So uh, I urge you to go back and, and check some of those episodes out and, and we'll get you the answers to your questions there. But if you have questions for future episodes, again, the hashtag AskDoubleStint or leaving a comment in the comment section. That's it for us this week. We'll talk again next week with our next edition of Double Stint. 